Hi, this is Jennifer Zeman, your host of The Few That Binds on the Eat, Drink, Dine podcast network. Today, I'm joined by Marwan Irani, chef and owner of Chai Pani, Botiwala, Nani's Rotisserie, Buxton Hall Barbecue, and Spicewala Spices. Hi, thanks for being here. Glad to be here. Could you please introduce yourself to listeners who may not know who you are? Okay, in case there's just a few people out there that have no idea who I am, uh, I'm Marwan Rani. I'm a chef and a restaurateur. Uh, I call Asheville, North Carolina home, but I have restaurants in Charlotte, Atlanta, which is how you and I got to know each other. And uh, my restaurants sort of started with this idea of Indian street food uh, about 10 years ago. And it was the first restaurant, Chaipani, was in Asheville, North Carolina. And then after that, we expanded to Atlanta. And I've kind of riffed off of that since then. I've got another concept called Botiwala, which is a different version of Indian street food. And I've also done some collaborations with other chefs. I've got a restaurant called Buxton Hall Barbecue, which is an Eastern Carolina-style barbecue restaurant in collaboration with another chef, Elliot Moss. And uh, during the pandemic, found that I didn't have enough time in my hands, so I opened a couple more concepts doing... One doing a rotisserie chicken called Nani's Rotisserie Chicken, and another one with a chicken sandwich spinoff from Buxton Hall Barbecue. Uh, so all in all, I people call it a empire, but it's more modest than that. But I manage and run about eight restaurants. And then on the side, I have a little spice business called Spicewalla, uh, which supplies both customers at home and restaurants and chefs all over the country. And I'm the CEO and founder of that company, too. When did you roll that out? Because I remember at the first Brown in the South a few years ago, I got quite a few of the the products. Yeah, Yeah. we um, we started supplying restaurants in uh, the fall of 2008. And then in the fall of 2009, we started uh, supplying direct consumers also. Wow. So it's been three years. This this winter will be four. So like just like rewinding back, I was like, to joke that it's like your superhero origin story, if you will. If you like close your eyes, you don't have to close your, close your eyes, but if you think back to like your first food memory, like something like that first, like the, for me, it's like I was born in Brazil and there were like these glazed buns on a pink sheet, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, I was born in London, actually. My parents happened to be there at the time and I moved to India when I was four. And I do have a, my first food memory in London. Um, my parents were you know, struggling and just starting off and couldn't afford a lot. We had a tiny little apartment. And I must have been three years old, I, I, I imagine, uh, to have this memory. But my mom coming home with a cold, uh, shrink-wrapped pizza from the grocery store that she then um, heated up in the oven. And I don't remember the taste, but I remember looking at the pizza and everything about it, you know, to me is my memory of English food, kind of, kind of, kind of <laughs> fairly <laughs> Utilitarian, cold, and even anything exciting, even like a pizza, was reduced to something you'd find it and the grocery <laughs> shop. Um, but it, it's a it's a segue into arriving in India and living with my grandmother, um, who ran a sort of what we call a bed and breakfast today, a guest house. And Westerners would come to this town because there was an ashram, a spiritual uh, master's ashram. Uh, his tomb actually passed away. Was there. And um, kind of in the late 60s and early 70s, a lot of Westerners, Americans were coming to India looking for a guru from the Beatles on, you know, and, <laughs> and, a, lot, and a lot showed up in my little hometown. And my uh, grandmother, being very enterprising and entrepreneurial, uh, recognized that many of them needed a place to stay and there weren't that many, you know, places that were Western friendly. So she had this beautiful old bungalow that she opened up 
And uh, my mom kind of became the head chef, if you will. Uh, I mean, she didn't think of herself that way, but she was charged with figuring out how to cook food that was Western friendly, um, but still was, you know, um, Indian. I mean, you know, we were where we were in in Maharashtra, uh, about, oh, about a five hour drive uh, east of Mumbai. And that's when I, I think even at a young age, started to recognize that my mom was doing something remarkable, um, that she was making this cuisine that captured, well, I don't even know whether, well, it went both ways. What she was doing was she was making Indian cuisine imminently approachable to a Western palate without dumbing it down. And then she was taking Western cuisine and making it way more interesting <laughs> by Indian it again, mm-hmm. without changing the essential nature of the dish. So whether it was spaghetti and meatballs, literally, that it had, she had added some flourishes just to make it to where even Westerners would go like, this is the most amazing red sauce I've ever had. Like, what did you do to it? Right. Or whether she was making rice and dal and an Indian style goat curry, for example, and Westerners were like, oh my God, this is the best Indian food I've ever had. Um, and she did it very effortlessly and without overthinking it. And that's sort of my hero moment when I look back and go like, what's the single thing that's probably influenced me the most in the way I think about food? It's the way my mom thought about food. So she really was the person that stoked your curiosity for food. Well, at the time, she helped me develop an incredible palate. I mean, you got to remember the circumstances were so unusual. There was this kid that normally would have grown up in this little town of Maharashtra and just eaten his local food, you know, you know, whatever the local cuisine was. And, and but this exposure to this Western culture also exposed me to a global sort of palate. I mean, all my friends, you know, every now and then I bring a packed lunch with something in it. And my friends at school were looking like, what in God's name is that? Right? <laughs> I mean, he was making French toast, you know, for breakfast, you know, and uh, along with kitchery and, and, and English porridge, style porridge, you know, along with, you know, an, an Indian uh, equivalent for breakfast. So, I mean, there was this constant global cuisine, if you will, that she kept experimenting with as these folks keep showing up. The little time that she did spend in, in England, she absorbed a lot of English cuisine and even went to Italy for a few months and remarkably learned very quickly how to make homemade pasta. And, um, and so that's kind of what I grew up eating. So she so, was yeah. an adept cook, but like organically a fusion chef, really. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's, I know it's, Just I know absorbing it's a bits word. of her, I know fusion supposed to be a four letter word, but like it does, it can, there's like confusion and then there's fusion, right? Fusion. So, <laughs> yeah, it, it's it was, okay. It was, yeah, it was, that was exactly what she was doing. She was, yeah adopting bits and but she just made it her own i mean and until today people talking you know, my mom umrit will just wax poetic about my mom's cooking you know and she mastered the cuisine and i think therein lies the difference between folks that try to be adept at a number of things and mm-hmm. folks that master to the level to where then they can um you know it's like a jazz jazz musician once you understand the foundationals you're going to riff off of it mm-hmm. and incorporate other influences and and, and that's how i looked at her so she didn't just like, you know, oh, let me try this. And let me try that and put a few things together. And I see a lot of modern cooks trying to dabble around in various types of cuisines. No, she if she learned how to make pasta, she learned how to make pasta. <laughs> and so did she I mean, you were taught, obviously, by watching and just being around that. But you didn't initially go into hospitality. You know, a and totally different path. Right. And I wasn't even taught by it. Um, I was just informed by it and and something that circled back way later in life because growing up as a you know as a uh, a male child in india 
you weren't usually to be seen in the mm. kitchen. You know, I mean, it was mm. just part of the way, you know, the patriarchy or matriarchy in India worked. You know, like if I had sisters, they'd be more likely to be learning from my mom because it's expected that they would know the skill of how to cook as they got married and went to live in their new homes. So I, I didn't, but what I did walk away with when I, when I left India to come to America was an appreciation for something far broader and greater and more complex than just my cuisine, which by itself is pretty broad and complex also. Mm-hmm. Um, and this understanding when I got here that th- this idea of um, you know, wh- how food is represented in another country once you, once you arrive there, that it, in my mind, it was a lot more malleable than I think what most people would imagine when they came here. I mean, and that's why I feel like those first generation Indians that came here cooked the way they did. They didn't think they had room to play with it or or do something different to it or, um, you know, incorporate where they were into the cooking. And and we've had generations of chicken tikka masala and sag paneer and various curries and naan and, and everybody's imagining that's what Indian cuisine is. But if, again, if it wasn't for the, the way my childhood was informed, I wouldn't have imagined that, oh, well, you can do all these other things and they'll become part of the lexicon of Indian food, too. And at Chaipani, that's what you've really done. But getting there, like I mentioned, was not like a linear path. I mean, you were in San Francisco before you were in Asheville and you had a different career. Can you talk about your path to becoming a restaurateur? Sure. Uh, I mean, I came here to uh, ostensibly do my MBA. I mean, like any good Indian kid, I was shipped off to go get a better education abroad. And I imagine my parents thought that I'd come back home, you know, after I was done with that. and, And but I, I, I didn't. Uh, I, uh, while doing my MBA, um, started waiting tables in a, a little French um, bistro-style restaurant in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, of all places. And it was absolutely incredible. Um, the, the woman, who is now my mother-in-law, <laughs> Roz, <laughs> ran it, uh, had also, like my mom, had gone to France and spent time in Europe and was inspired to open a little French in a patisserie, which was very underappreciated at the time in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. And uh, I was waiting tables there, and that's where I met Molly, who was the owner's daughter, my wife. Um, she was going out of college in San Francisco. So eventually, you know, the distance was too far for me to bear. So I uprooted myself out of my program in, uh, in South Carolina, in Columbia, South Carolina. And you can imagine what that landing was like. When I first arrived in I was about to say, quite the first southern city to live in. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> And moved to, to San Francisco to be with Molly, which is where we eventually settled down and raised a family and started a career. But that short time I spent in, in college, um, you know, in, uh, sort of living in apartments with other students is where I started first experimenting with cooking. I, I went to my first uh, Indian meal in Columbia, South Carolina, and God bless them. It was just another classic Indian curry house in a strip mall doing with a lunch buffet. And I remember being just shocked. I mean, not shocked is the right word. Just taking aback at the food. I was just like, I don't understand. What, what are we eating? What is this? And everybody's like, it's Indian food. I'm like, no, it's not. I mean, it, I mean, it is, but it isn't. You know, it's, it, it, it's a very specific type of Indian cuisine, but I, I don't eat this at home. Like, medicals do. Like, why are we all eating this? And everybody's like, well, that's all there is. And I remember even then, you know, saying like, okay, well, this is ridiculous. I can't eat this every day. So I call my mom and back home. I'm like, hey, I need some help uh, with some recipes so I can learn how to cook for myself. Simple things that I just cannot get. Mm-hmm. What if I go to an Indian restaurant, rice and dal, you know, mm-hmm. a simple vegetable dish. Um, and uh, she, by phone and by snail mail back in the day, this is like precursor to even email, I'm dating myself, early 90s, started sending me recipes. 
And then every time she'd come to visit, which was maybe once in a year, she'd cook. And now I was paying attention. Now I was like, what are you doing? And the other thing that I learned from her in that very short two years is like, again, we're in a food desert at the time. It seemed like in Columbia, South Carolina. Uh, how do you cook with what's around you and don't get hung up on what's missing and what's not available? You know, I mean, she's trying to show me a class, you know, like a go and fish curry. Well, where in God's name is she going to find curry leaves and, 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 and yeah, black when we mustard first seeds? Moved here, my parents are from Mexico City. When they first moved here, they didn't have cilantro here at the oh, A&P. See? I mean, we couldn't <laughs> find tortillas. My my grandmothers would come with suitcases full of stuff. You know, <laughs> like <laughs> Exactly. And subsequent trips, she would start bringing me some of the ingredients that, that I couldn't find here. But in this in-between time, she probably did what your parents and grandparents did, just made do, right? Figured it out. And I think that was the second biggest lesson I learned from my mom. One was just this exposure to the way she thinks about cooking. And the second is like this idea of making do. And I've referred to it in previous articles and interviews as Jagard, this Indian sensibility, this MacGyvering it, um, you know. Right. Where you were like, no, we, we'll figure this out. We, we can't use this. Let's try that. If this is not available, we'll make that. This is a good enough substitute. You know, don't don't sweat the details. MacGyver, you got it. And it's an Indian sensibility that basically the whole country is built on. <laughs> <laughs> and it served me well. So then, uh, so I took that, that sort of newfound curiosity for cooking and arrived in San Francisco in the mid-90s in what was, I think, sort of the golden age of California cuisine. Um, you know, Alice Waters or Chez Panisse was getting recognized. Thomas Keller had just opened uh, the French Laundry. Michael Minna had his restaurants there. Um, you know, uh, there, it was an, it, just an incredible food scene. And before food was food, you know, with the capital F, right? And uh, and I just, I don't know why or how, just fell in love with the idea of a food culture. And the Bay Area in particular just had so much to offer in terms of product and produce and all the way from Napa on down. And, uh, and I started recognizing that, oh, I'm already cooking Indian food. Well, let's expand the repertoire here. Let's start learning about these cuisines. Because again, I was so used to my mom back when I was growing up, just essentially saying, oh, here's a new style of food, a new cuisine, a new idea, a new delicious thing. I mean, it was the first time I had Vietnamese food. It was the first time I had Thai food. It's the first time I'd eaten Korean, you know, and I was 20, mid, in my mid-20s. Um, so all this explosion of flavor and, 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 and truly also understanding American food for the first time, you know, what we now call modern American cuisine as driven by California was just a revelation to me. Indian, you know, like the whole entire Indian community in Berkeley, like, did you find that that was representative of the Indian food that you knew or the cuisine no, from so India that you knew? Rather? Exactly. So this is where that's a, a, another key piece clicked into place. So there were plenty of the classic Indian restaurants, even the fine dining ones were still white tablecloth, sitar music in the background, you know, posters on the wall that looked like they were commissioned by the Tourism Board of India. But I started finding these hole in the walls. Um, one, my favorite was called Shalimar. It was a Pakistani kebab style place right there in the, um, in, in the Tenderloin. And uh, well, the tender knob actually. Tender knob, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, right there, Gary and Jones, and a couple of dives like that with you know kebabs and getting away from the curry laden dishes and into the sort of grilled meat street style food. And then in Berkeley, I discovered this place called Vicks uh, Chalk House, which again, when I was there, 
and you probably know it well, was a dive. It was not the bigger space it's in. It was in this other older warehouse. It was a warehouse and like it's all right. families around tables it's eating out of styrofoam. That's the first time I had chat. Yeah. Perfect. Mm-hmm. And that, and I saw that, that proved to me when I looked around and saw how many Americans were there, also enjoying this food right there with the Indian families. Well, two things. A, you could tell the Americans would never have wandered there on their own. They were brought there by somebody. And then once they figured it out, they're like, oh, my God, we love this. Yeah. And then and they brought B, their friends and they brought their friends. And that's how it got so busy. Yeah. Right. But there was nothing about the experience in both those places that spoke to me of India. Like I'm saying the food's here. But why isn't the fun, the excitement, mm. the color, the vibrancy, the smell, the joy? Right. You're in this like, you know, like a warehouse. Like you said, I'm yeah. Place. But definitely there was no color. It was completely gray. Exactly. It was utilitarian. Mm-hmm. It was very utilitarian. And I and, and, and to a certain degree, even the chart you know, that was being made, uh, I could see everywhere I looked and I'm like, oh, my God, if you just lighten this and brighten this and look how this place did it with Vietnamese cuisine and look how that place did it with, you know, with Thai food. Like if we could only do this to Indian food. Uh, and, and all this whole time, my mom. Is yeah, I was like, saying you're doing what your head. mom did. Exactly. Mom, she's yeah. in the back of my head. She's mm-hmm. been like, oh my God, this would be so much more enjoyable if it was less greasy or less oily or less this and less that. So the seeds of all that were planted in my head of saying like, here's the window to do kebabs and naan and grilled meats and chaat and all of that. But, and, and it'll work and Americans will love it. Somebody just needs to take this up a notch just to really crack the code for how to make this a runaway hit. And, and for the next 12 years I live in the Bay Area, I wouldn't stop talking about it. Somebody needs to do this and somebody <laughs> needs to do that. <laughs> and then that's somebody. <laughs> but I was safe, safe in my career, safe in my job, safe, you know, who in their right mm-hmm. mind is going to go open a restaurant, especially mm-hmm. in the Bay Area, given just the cost of, of getting a business for yourself. And there, in the, and there the story would have ended, you know, me just staying in, in my career. But in 2002, Molly and I uh, went to India and adopted, you know, the love of her life, our daughter. And we brought her back and quickly recognized that while the berry was great for dinks, right? Dual income, no kids. <laughs> it was, we could not afford to raise Arya mm-hmm. and also parent her in the way we wanted to, especially after everything we'd gone through to bring her into our lives. You know, just all the years of trial and, 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 and tears to get to, to get to this point, it wasn't working. And the only way we saw it was to get out. We just realized like we had to move somewhere that was more affordable, but where my career could still be affordable and brought there and and have that time. So we moved to Asheville, North Carolina mm-hmm. uh, in 2005. And uh, my career, which was in sales, luxury automobile sales at the time, working for Lexus and then Mercedes, was portable as in I landed on my feet here in luxury real estate development. Right. So super high end places, you know, surrounded by golf courses up in the mountains and all of that jazz. And, you know, even here, I'd complain about the scene of Indian food a little <laughs> bit and go like, oh, my God, if only somebody, you know, did this. And especially in Asheville, I could see kind of like, man, this town would really eat it up if somebody did this. But that was for somebody else to do. I was just the critic, you know, just <laughs> criticizing the state of affairs, but not able to actually not feel like I was empowered to do anything about it. Um, but then, you know, to wrap and bring the story full circle, uh, 2008 hit the follow up the real estate business collapsed. Luxury real estate just went to zero. And um, I was faced within, you know, the prospect of having to reinvent myself and find a new career. 
Um, and but both the my traditional area, you know, luxury automobiles and luxury real estate were getting hammered. Yeah. And I'm sitting there scratching my head, like, what do I do? And Molly looked at me and said, you know, I didn't want to bring this up, but for as long as I've known you, you've been talking about this idea you've had for Indian food, and you're one of the best cooks I know when it comes to this interpretation. I don't think anybody else can do this. I think the person that you've been waiting for to come along this whole time is you. Uh, and my first response is like, well, we don't know anything about the restaurant business. And Molly said, yeah, but I don't think most people do actually. She put it that way and I looked around. I'm like, you know, she's actually right. Because her parents are in the restaurant business. They don't know what they were doing. No. And, you know, and unless you're a large corporate chain, I mean, she's kind of right. You know, most people like fell into the business sometimes. And if anything, she said, like your business background and your background in understanding customer psychology and sales and, um, you know, should probably help you uh, run a well-run business, not just a well-run restaurant. So we did it. We took the scariest time of our lives when everything seemed to be falling apart around us and the economy was crashing into what we now know as the Great Recession. Molly and I opened a tiny 39-seat restaurant in Ashland, North Carolina <laughs> called Chaipani Indian Street Food. In the middle of a recession. And now yes. look at you, eight restaurants later and a spice yeah. line and a food hall, right? I mean, there's the food yes. hall. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Oh, that's we'll, right. Yeah. yeah, we'll get to that later. <laughs> but, but, uh, you're like, oh, yeah, the food hall, that thing too. <laughs> but, but you mentioned, before we get into the actual restaurant, I've seen you talk about your love for Asheville and yes. how it couldn't, like you have just said, it couldn't have happened anywhere but Asheville. And like, what is your relationship like to the city and why is it such a special place to you? Yeah, I've never had a sense of belonging somewhere the way I've duped in Asheville. I mean, I was born in London, but when I was four, I moved to India. And even though I was Indian, you know, I was this English speaking kid. I mean, English is my first language. So it was immediately out of place in my school, you know, when I arrived in India, my friend. And here I was with a, you know, a guest house entertaining Western you know, visitors in this tiny little town in the middle of nowhere, you know, I mean, everything about my childhood was strange and, and, and I didn't quite ever fit in with just, you know, what every kid wants to do, fit in with the culture, fit in with the people, fit in with their friends. And I think that because of that, I never felt the sense of place that this is my hometown, even though I lived there for, um, you know, 16 years until I, I came to America. And also my um, family, my, my mom and my dad were from two completely different religions. And that back then was very unusual for, you know, he was Parsi, she was Hindu. They didn't even speak a common language. So I grew up not even, you know, not even having a real sense of identity of my culture, my heritage, my people, my religion, which is so important to Indians. It even, it even informs the cuisine you eat. I mean, mm -hmm. I can tell somebody's religion and ethnicity by the food they eat in India. And so, and when I came to America, I was Columbia, South Carolina, and I knew I was just there as a, as a grad student. Uh, and then never felt really fully like this is my place. I'm in the South in the early 90s. And then San Francisco, just when I started feeling like maybe I could belong here, I, I, the, you know, I got um, that, that I felt like a generation, not just me, of young folks that had come to this bohemian city. Mm -hmm. um, you know, to celebrate arts and music and culture and poetry and reading and, and sort of bohemian lifestyle, suddenly found themselves pushed aside as this wave of Silicon Valley tech and money overtook the entire Bay Area. And if you weren't in that 
if you weren't doing that, then you kind of were like on the outside looking in. And, and I slowly felt like even that I lost. So Asheville, when I landed here and came here to raise my child, for the first time felt like I'd put roots down. And then when I finally opened a business in Asheville, I, for the first time, felt like I was a part of something, part of a community, part of a city, part of the fabric of the city. And until today, I take very seriously that that's a responsibility as a citizen, that you don't just live here, you give back, you, you integrate, you uh, look for opportunities to constantly weave yourself more and more into the fabric of where you are. And Asheville is the kind of town where it actually can be done. It's the biggest small town in America, I call it. And it, it's small enough to where you can know everybody and everybody can know you. And, and if you, you know, uh, you, you can have that sense of community without feeling lost, like in a really big city, like Atlanta mm-hmm. sometimes feels that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and on the flip side, it's a big enough city to where there's opportunity to do things um, and, and, and grow the base. So you mentioned, you know, my involvement in the food hall. Like I looked at that almost as a um, civic service to the city to take this building that was this iconic historic building that had been underserved for so long and to bring it back to be a vibrant part of the community something that the town's proud of something where tourists walk in they go oh my god this is so beautiful this art deco masterpiece um that's that was a bigger driving factor for me than than the fact that there was an economic opportunity but with Asheville, i mean Asheville really was you know the springboard for your culinary career Mm -hmm. i mean i i learned of you as a chef because of your Asheville restaurant. It was, you know, and then you came to Atlanta, you know, so it was already successful there. What was it like to open up this restaurant? Because like, as you were saying, a lot of Indian restaurants can be kind of like utilitarian, but your restaurant, there's posters, it's vibrant, you know, there's color. There's a lot of layers in design too, with three-dimensional items, which I've always really loved. Um, A lot of detail. Yeah, a, a lot of storytelling, and and that was that was what I wanted to do. It, it's like, you know, Asheville is serves a perfect foil for storytelling. Like the whole city seems to be built around telling stories. You know, off off its history, off its buildings, off its people, of Appalachia. And um, I mean, even you you walk the street and the buskers, and 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 you know, there's a sense of like art and community and a celebration of art. And I call it storytelling, but it, there's many mediums for it. You know, whether it's paint or craftsmanship or pottery or or music or in my case food so i i knew that the part that was missing from let's say vix and you know and, and no discredit to vix i mean i love that place and that's what yeah. started my even gave me the idea was like are we telling the story of where this food came from and how it evolved and how it got here and and telling it in three-dimensional ways like you said like even like i grew up drinking pumps up you know the the classic sort of indian cola and when I first came here, Thumbs Up wasn't very well known in the U.S. So we found these old Thumbs Up bottles and cut them in half and made glass and vases out of them. And even if somebody, even if nine out of 10 people had no idea what it was for that one person that grew up in India and saw the bottle, they'd immediately know. But here's the cool part. For everybody else, even if they didn't know what it was, they knew it meant something. And I wanted everything in there to mean something. So if somebody asked, like, what does that mean? And why is that there? I could tell the story. So every one of those beautiful, incredible photographs on the wall that are larger life, that's from my hometown. I know half those people. <laughs> a friend of mine, I commissioned her, and she was an American photographer who was living in India at the time, and I commissioned her to take these photographs, and I wanted them to be familiar to me, so that when I looked around, I saw things that were comforting to me and familiar to me and people that I knew. Um, the, the, the guy, there's a picture of this old man who looks like he's 101, 
uh, he's the bangle wallah and he sells bangles. When I went to India with my daughter, when she was old enough to buy bangles, we went to that store and bought bangles, you know. And yet to somebody that's uninformed or doesn't know the story, it's just a really cool picture of this, you know, this, this, this character on the wall. So, and the town lined up for it. I mean, it's sort of, on opening day, we had a line down the block to the, to the car, uh, the garage. And we were supposed to be open from 11 a.m. to 11 p.m. And we ran out of food at, uh, I think, uh, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And then the next day, we ran out of food at 12. Molly was standing there at the door with the menu with everything crossed out except for three things, letting people know. Like, that's all we got. <laughs> and then we just shut down for four days just to prep and, and rebuild our, our, you know, our, our inventory back up to be able to reopen. I mean, we had spent every penny we had, and our friends had uh, all given us grants and loans. And I think we opened with something just under $200 in the cash register. And that was the entire money of the enterprise. And we needed the sales from that day to be able to buy food the next day to cook with. I mean, it's a national story. Like, I don't think we would have had the courage to go that far to the edge uh, in, in, a, in a place like San Francisco or Atlanta or any big city. It would have just been too scary, too overwhelming, uh, too stressful. But this town, just even now, even though it's grown so much, really feels to me that it wants to reward dreamers and, and artists and people with passion, um, it, it wants to take care of them. We'll be right back after this short break. You're listening to The Food That Binds with Jennifer Zeman on the Eat, Drink, Dine podcast network. This is my interview with Mehran Irani. It does feel very much like what San Francisco used to feel like, to or like nice. any like little mountain hippie town in Colorado. Yeah. You know, it's it's got that vibe and it's definitely a specialness. And I mean, as you put roots down in Asheville, I mean, you really soaked up all of the local color as well. I mean, your your menu is very Southern in the fact that I don't know if it's just you're really good at connecting the dots, but like okra, for instance, one of your best selling <laughs> items, you know, yeah. like yeah. maybe that's why it was also such a runaway success because you were showing them something they'd probably eaten a hundred times. But Absolutely right. Fun, yeah, it's the dots. Different. Yeah. Going back again, again, talking back to my mom, you know, and uh, and, it, and honestly, Jennifer, it took me a while to figure this part of the story out. I mean, uh, on day one of Chaipani opening or day five, I couldn't have explained as well as I am right now how mm-hmm. much of what I saw my mom doing informed me. Mm-hmm. I came to appreciate that the more time I spent doing what I was doing. But yeah, kale, pakoras, okra fries, sweet potato, chot. Um, you know, these are a peanut shot. These are very familiar Southern dishes. And um, and it, it, it was connecting the dots, like you said. It's trying to be approachable without dumbing it down. And I didn't worry too much about is it authentic or not? Is it traditional or not? I just said, like, is this something that if I saw it in India, I'd still be delighted to eat it? And just because it's made with green tomatoes instead of potatoes or onions, you know, or, or kale or, or just mustard greens or sweet potatoes instead of, you know, regular starches. Like, why should that change anything about the experience of enjoying this dish? And then, and we had some fun, you know, our, our gateway dish, the sloppy jai. Um, you know, it's basically, <laughs> this is where I, see, here's, here's, okay. It is a gateway I, dish. A lot of people love that dish. A lot of people. <laughs> and the way I looked at it back then, and I still feel that way right now, I feel like, look, with, with some of these cuisines, you know, like Indian food that are unfamiliar, and, or you open one of these in a restaurant, I mean, restaurant in a town where people may be unfamiliar with that particular style of cuisine, it's 
hard enough for someone to work up the courage to come in and say, I'm going to try something new and different, right? And in my mind, like, okay, well, then let's get rid of any barriers that might stand in the way of that person wanting to try something new. And if it means, like, let's name Kimapau something playful, like Sloppy Jai, I don't think I'm losing anything, or I don't think I'm doing something. It's repackaging. It's marketing, right? I mean, I'm repackaging it. I'm marketing it. Let this person experience it and join. They're like, oh my God, this is amazing. And then I can tell the story of, oh, well, actually, this is a traditional, you know, ancient Persian dish that the Parsis bought that's become popularized in this part of the country, yada, yada, yada. So where it didn't hurt to leave the dish name because it made sense to do it, I left it that way, where it made sense to go ahead and Americanize it, and I'm using air quotes right now, I felt comfortable doing it. Well, you met your diners where they were at the moment. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we, we just called it a, a, a fish wrap, you know, and, and, and I didn't want to like sit there and, and have somebody feel nervous to order this thing because of this unfamiliar name. But, you know, and yeah, they don't have to ask what it is. They're like, I like fish. I like wraps. I'll try this. Yeah. I'll try this out. Exactly. But and so- even Butuala, my, my other restaurant is, is very similar. Like I've kept the names familiar, the ingredients familiar. But, you know, you take one bite, and you know that this is something different. That you try. Some, I mean, something that I saw you talk about in, in another interview, which I identified with. I mean, I moved from Brazil to the South in 1978. Um, and I grew up here and then I lived in San Francisco for four or five years after college, but then I came back. I mean, I'm a Southerner, right? Yeah. I mean, by all, I mean, I've never lived really anywhere else in the United States except for Atlanta and San Francisco for those four years and New York for two. But, but, um, you know, I never, I still don't feel Southern enough, right. you know, um, even yeah. though I can probably cook Southern food better than most yeah. people who were born and raised yeah. here. You know, I'm always a little bit of an outsider. And I saw you talk about that and how, you know, it was a struggle for you, which is also why you started Brown in the South. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're describing a very familiar feeling, right? For anybody. I mean, how long? I mean, I've lived here longer than most any other parts of the world. And yet it's hard to identify as being off this place. And I think it's not just true for here. I think somebody may feel that way. You know, that's from here that goes to India, maybe. They'll always feel Southern. They may not feel like, you know, they're Indian or Maharashtra or whatever have you. And the epiphany that I had, and well, not even an epiphany, it's like an evolutionary thought process of, how, of thinking a lot about how, how does identity work? Like, at what point do you become this thing, right? Southern or, or Californian or, or whatever. Is it, the, is it the place that accepts you that slowly makes you feel like, oh, now I'm one of, the, one of these people? Or is it generations that you have to be here? in order to inherit an identity. And what I arrived at was like, maybe there's work to be done on my end too, that I have to stand up and be counted. And I have to basically possibly change the narrative that to be Southern also looks like this now. Maybe not 30 years ago, maybe not even 20 years ago, but the South that I live in, there's a lot of people that look like you, that look like me, that have come from a lot of places that need to be counted, to not be okay with saying, I'm still this other. Because if we keep doing that, then this place that we live will get stuck in one identity that just doesn't ever evolve. And, and I believe that that is what then creates these sort of like really uh, distinct pockets uh, of, of the way people segregate themselves, you know, intentionally or unintentionally. I don't know, but India town and Korea town and Japantown and Chinatown and, you know, and, and Shambodia, 
you know, Chambly, <laughs> right? And and the delete there in Koreatown. And I feel like that just happens because we don't empower ourselves to stand up and be counted as now I am off this place. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not going to happen overnight, but I've been here since 2005. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, I'm saying it's okay to say like, hey, I, I'm going to I'm gonna call myself a son. Let's just start with that first. And just by very much doing that, it immediately then begs the question, well, then what is a son? And I'm like, okay, now we're having a conversation. And and that's sort of what Brown of the Sat was about, was I ran into um, like-minded Indian chefs, because that was my little community of, of Indian chefs, so Vish, uh, Bhatt, Chiti Kumar, Manit Chauhan, uh, Asha Gomez, uh, you know, even, even some younger ones like Sam Four and, and from uh, Tuk Tuk in, in Louisville, and Farhan. Uh, and uh, I asked the same question, like, uh, what does it take for you to feel like you're from here? Um, you know, Asha made the same comment. She said she can make cornbread better than anybody. I interviewed her last <laughs> week. <laughs> you know. And uh, uh, and and I, at the time, we didn't know how to quite answer the question. I said, "Well, let's do this. Let's let's lean into uh, Southern identities and let's cook a dinner where we're chefs of Indian origin." That well, I said instead of being folks from India that happen to live in the South. Let's be Southerners that happen to come from India right. and, and see what, if you cooked a meal with that, you know, with that orientation, what would it look like? Uh, and that first one, you know, has become legendary now as we call it Desi Diner. Desi is the colloquialism for people from India, kind of like Homi. Um, and uh, it was, yeah, it was incredible. I mean, you know, when she was making meatloaf, you're starting Southern first, right? I'm making meatloaf, but here's I'm bringing my Indian heritage to it. I'm making, somebody's making cornbread. This is how I'm bringing my Indian heritage to it. I'm making butternut squash soup. I'm making, you know, fried chicken and waffles. I'm making all these dishes. And how does being from India influence that dish? And it was a remarkable meal. It started an incredible conversation. And I think I'm still, I personally still feel like I'm on a journey to see where that conversation goes. What happened with that due to COVID and everything? Well, due to COVID, I mean, most of these, you know, we're we're cooks, we're chefs, we want to cook. and, and that's how we wanted to have these conversations and have these stories around the dining table. So when we could no longer do it around the dining table, I think we all kind of took a, a break from, from having that conversation, at least as a group. I feel like I talk about it a lot. You know, I'm sure Asha talks a lot about her identity and, 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 going, and being here in the South. I think we all have continued the conversation in our own ways. Um, but my, um, if I was able to, Fast forward and say, where do I see this thing heading? I hope it's a broader conversation than just five or six Indians talking about it. I hope it's people from all over the world that happen to live in the South and not call it home um, saying, how do we use food to help um, talk about what it means to be Southern? And, and I don't think food's a convenient um, sort of vehicle uh, to talk about identity. I think it's integral to identity. I think most of us identify our strongest identifiers are around around food. We, we, we I, you know, I mentioned it earlier in the podcast that I can tell where somebody is from India by just looking at what's on their plate. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, I know it's very much that way for me. And and everywhere I look around, when I see the strongest connections to someone going back to the family, the tradition, the roots, their ancestry, it's when food's in front of them. Um, so it, it's it's. It's not just convenient because we're chefs. I think it's actually a really important part of how immigrants and diasporas find identity when they arrive in new places and make them home. 
And in the American South, you know, I think food's an important part of the Southern identity, notwithstanding immigrants coming. Mm-hmm. Um, we're so strongly defined by our cuisine here that it's a really natural place to then have this conversation simultaneously. Yeah, I don't think I really appreciated it until I came back from living in San Francisco, because like you said, there's something that was when I was working in corporate America. Um, I was doing PR at the time uh, for Gap Corporate. And I went to culinary school because there's something in San Francisco that gets you obsessed with food and the produce, the produce, especially. I think that's when I really connected to what produce could do. And then I came back and and that's when the the farmers markets in Atlanta and the young farmers were really starting to come up and grow really interesting yeah. things. And it was for me, I think that's when I took off. But like with COVID happening, what did it do to your restaurants? Like, I mean, what was that like as an operator? Well, I think I would have answered the question quite differently if I still had only the first restaurant shy time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think I would have been completely panic struck because it would have felt very personal. Um, but at this point, you know, we had six, seven restaurants, um, uh, you know, and 350 people working for me. And um, I kind of went into crisis management mode. I didn't have time to take it personally. I didn't have time to sit there and have an existential crisis about the restaurant business and, and, and <laughs> whether we we're going to make it or not with the future, if it is or not. I immediately had work to do. I had people to take care of, lots of them. Um, and make sure that they didn't have existential crisis. <laughs> <laughs> so my number one mode was to make sure that everybody else is going to be okay. And um, and uh, so you immediately go into trying to figure out how to make sure that everybody's okay. We did fundraisers, you know, in the early days before PPP became a thing. You know, just figured out whether it made more sense to us to be open or closed. I mean, we very quickly, you know, like we, I think it was September, I mean, March 14th that we shut down a restaurant and then reopened maybe in the 17th in takeout mode and ran in takeout mode for about a week or so because everybody was thought that that's what you're supposed to do. And then about a week or 10 days into doing takeout, I suddenly realized like, this is not just a short-term one or two week solution. We could be in this mode for a long time. And if you're gonna be in this mode for a long time, we need to think about how to do this the right way, both from a safety standpoint back then, as well as just functionally. Like we were not, you know, we didn't know what the hell we were doing. We were not built to be a takeout restaurant. So we shut everything down then for a month and really thought through how do you build a takeout operation that's actually going to be sustainable, make money, survive by itself, and employ as many people as possible. Um, so we shifted to that mode and reopened slowly June and July of last year as takeout restaurants and stayed in that mode until June of this year for, for one full year. And did it pretty successfully. All of our restaurants were coming back to economic sustainability um, with just being in takeout mode, in large part because Indian food is already takeout friendly. Right. It lends um, itself well. It lends Your itself concepts well. do, yeah. Even exactly. barbecue does. You know, Buxton Hall yeah. was actually my last restaurant meal, I think, before the pandemic. Oh, no, I ate right. there with my family. It was before everyone, I was like looking around going, my crazy or is this going to be a thing? And then it was a thing, <laughs> you know? Exactly. And, you know, interesting, you mentioned Buxton Hall. Of all of her concepts, Buxton struggled the most with takeout. Interesting. And, and, and you're right. I, like you thought, like, well, it's barbecue and, and, and you know, this should, this should make complete sense for takeout. Well, Buxton was built from the ground up to be a in-person experience. It is an experience. Right? We, we were not a shack on the side of the road, mm-hmm. uh, you know, cranking out to go barbecue sandwiches, which is the traditional barbecue 
open kitchen, the bar, the tall ceilings, the windows. Yeah. It's a show. It's a show. It's theater. It's barbecue theater. And it's incredible barbecue theater. And without the theater, you know, people were like, well, you know, I mean, I can get a barbecue sandwich anywhere. And uh, there was a lot more competition for barbecue sandwiches in town than they were for Indian food. Like we cornered the market. In and in a very good right. business sense, identifying holes in the market. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and, but our food hall places suffered, of course, Pond City Market, you know, the whole market was dead and we had just opened an Optimist Hall, another food hall in, in Charlotte. And those two um, also struggled. But all in all, it, it still is a, a real, um, I mean, I, I would say like only now, a year into this, Am I allowing myself to think existential thoughts of like, what is the future of this business? Uh, especially with the second, you know, this is Delta variant kind of showing us that this is not a one and done with the vaccine, that this could be around in, in waves. Hopefully each wave smaller. It's going to be endemic, you know, I definitely. Yeah, it will be endemic. And I'm fine with endemic. I mean, you know, the flu is endemic and that killed 60,000 people a year and we can handle that. I just think that it's going to be continuous waves mm-hmm. that'll get smaller and smaller and smaller until it's endemic. But somewhere along the line, it, it is. I mean, it, what I'm saying, it, 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 just like a you know, after an earthquake hits and and the um, you know the, the aftershocks. Yeah, I think the aftershocks of this are still going to affect us, and the businesses that are built on more fragile economic models will feel those aftershocks much more potently than ones that are not. And I still, you know, I still am thankful that Chaipani opened in the middle of the Great Recession. And that made us uh, learn how to handle crisis and stress and, um, you know, making do with little and jugarding it and MacGyvering it and, <laughs> and doing as much as you can with whatever you have to do. And also that particular time period also forged, uh, opening back in 2009, also forged um, a, a real bond with the early team. I mean, we had some hard winters and we got to them and most of the team is still with us. Wow. In fact, I would say um, off the first 15 people hired, about 11 are still working. Wow. So uh, even after the pandemic, you retain that much staff. Yeah, but now they're all senior, uh, you know, members. But this is one restaurant. I mean, the three guys that were in the kitchen with me, three of them are still working. One's running Spice Wallow, one's my culinary director, and one's the chef. Because they so you must out. be giving them good work-life balance, which I think is a reason a lot of restaurants are having a hard time finding staff right now. I mean, well, yeah, I mean, we're really doing well at our management level and sort of at our executive and leadership level. Where we're struggling is definitely finding, you know, front of the house staff and some of those secondary jobs, bussers, dishwashers, and, and food runners. Because that's those are the positions that have always been transitional, you know, uh, as people come and go through those jobs. But in Atlanta, uh, I've never seen this many restaurants at the same time asking on social media for job hires. I mean, when I when I say like across the board, the best restaurants, every restaurant is looking for somebody they can't find people. And and that's the kind of stuff that I'm trying to figure out and look around corners. Is it something that's going to be around for a while? The shortage of labor as these aftershocks keep happening. And people get nervous and, and want to hunker down and not go out again into the workforce. Um, or is this just a temporary supply demand issue because of, you know, the, the rapid rebound that we thought we were making this summer. And so those are the problems that preoccupy me now. <laughs> I think they're preoccupying every, anybody in the, any service industry right now, you know, I, whether it's lawn services or restaurants, I think people are struggling finding people 
But if you're providing people with a good work-life balance, which it seems like you are, if you have that much staff retention after all of these years, you will probably be better off than most. Yeah. And, and that was one of the things that we had really built our organization around was, uh, you know, people, people like to think of it as, as hiring and retention. And I, and I thought if I, I would think of it more as um, engagement and inspiration. Like, how do you engage people that want to work with you? And then how do you inspire them to want to stay with you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not so just a job. To, it's a two-way yeah, street. They're getting yeah. something from it, which exactly. you seem to want to do with your customers, too, because instead of just being utilitarian, you want to educate as well. I don't want to have anybody over a hammer with, you know, with, oh, my God, look at these cool things we're doing. But I definitely want there to be depth to what we're doing. So if anybody wants to know, you know, we send every pre-pandemic, we every year would send twice a year would send team members to India, um, fully company paid. I remember that. I remember that. And anybody from a dishwasher to a GM could apply. And, you know, about 12 people a year would send. But one of the things we do is like you have to go and volunteer at this community center in the slum. And Mumbai, the largest uh, slum, because I, I don't want, you know, people to go to India and think we were all like, you know, Indian street food and gurus and, and, and color and riot and everything. Um, there's hardship everywhere. And uh, I, I just think it centers people when they come back. I'm going to put it this way. We're in the service industry. And I really sort of take that to heart as in the, the idea for anybody that works in the service industry is to be off service. And that extends well beyond the four walls of the restaurant. Mm. Um, we as a restaurant are meant to be of service um, and not just by feeding people. We're meant to be of service, which means serve the community, serve people in need, serve, you know, um, uh, whoever and wherever you can. That is your mission. That's your raison d'etre. That's why you're here. So in, in our kitchen in, in Chaipani, um, there's a uh, quote over the, over the kitchen. Um, that's a spiritual quote from India that says mastery and servitude. The idea being, you know, you want, you, you want to be a master, uh, we'll learn how to be a service and it'll teach you everything you need to know, um, to have mastery. So that, that ethos kind of like, you know, helped a lot during the pandemic, um, because it again, reoriented us from we're in survival mode to we're off service to this community. How can we continue doing that during the pandemic? And it's essential that we survive this because with us gone, then that it's a loss to the, to the community. And with the pandemic, how has it personally affected your relationship to food and restaurants? Like I'm a restaurant critic who doesn't go eat in restaurants anymore. Right. You know, right. like, <laughs> like it's like I'm rethinking everything. You right. know? I had pretty much about three weeks into Chaipani first opening and me working on the line from six in the morning to 11 at night and then coming home and writing checks and paying the bills and, and, and putting in the order, you know, at two in the morning for, uh, you know, with the vendors, um, pretty much three weeks into that, I stopped cooking at home. Um, I just didn't have the energy to cook. Molly became the at home cook and, you know, I would cook if it was a special dinner or Christmas or something, you know, I'm doing a rack of lamb or something. I'd do that. But on a daily basis, I just stopped cooking. I just didn't have the energy or, or to do it. And I still enjoyed cooking as in, you know, in the restaurant or show cooking later on, as I called it, when you're doing demonstrations and you know, all of that. In the pandemic, about a month into it, I suddenly said, I-, I miss cooking. And I went to the grocery store and bought a bunch of ingredients and cracked open a bunch of old cookbooks, including um, uh, Ad Hoc by Thomas Keller, one of my favorite. Um, home cookbooks and started cooking again. 
And then it started, you know, I started doing this little Instagram video, uh, IGT live on Saturdays where I said, you know, well, hell, why don't I just start doing some Indian cooking classes to show everybody stuck at home how to cook at home without it being a big deal. And, um, and, you know, I was in the spice trade and I felt like that would help the spice business also to show people how to do it. But I literally would do things like wilted veggie pakora, where I'm like, you know, in, the, in my kitchen, in the bottom vegetable drawer, pulling out wilted <laughs> spinach and, and, and very, and, very know. timely. <laughs> yeah. And just basically saying like, you can make anything out of anything. You know, like, I mean, I literally would name dishes like, you know, about to go bad, go curry. You know? <laughs> <laughs> are you still um, doing yeah. these videos or are they uh, so i did i did them for about a, a year and they kind of uh, you know sort of had a life of their own i mean i still get stopped in my neighborhood by you know the older women that go like which is my core audience and family nice 60 plus <laughs> older white women <laughs> say, oh my god I just love that that recipe you did for that, you know, that one particular dish or that green beans with mustard seed or whatever have you. So I'm not doing them as frequently as I used to, um, but I still try to do about one or two a month. And um, they keep leading to all kinds of fun and interesting opportunities. Like, you know, the cooking show thing I did with Ludacris was because somebody saw me doing that. You know, I'm having a conversation with PBS about doing a little show because somebody saw one of those little videos. Very but nice. Again, it was all because I just said, uh, I just kind of like started missing cooking at home again. And, and I wasn't just cooking for, I mean, I was cooking dinner. That, that was what was going on. And I would just be like, okay, I'm cooking dinner, but you can watch in while I'm cooking dinner because we're going to sit down and eat it after. And I'm sure a lot of people that are lonely too, that was like also a service, you know, because they felt like they weren't alone and you're very jovial. That is exactly <laughs> what I was doing. I was actually trying to speak to people. I was using the comfort of cooking at home as a moment of just, you know, not being stressed out, not worrying about things, um, just being engaged. And we talk about that. I mean, we, I talk a lot about that while I was doing it, you know, about how the very fact that I was doing this was bringing me comfort. Like I knew I was going to sit down with my family and have a great meal. And it was my way of showing people at home, like, it's going to be okay. Like it was for one minute, for one moment in the day, um, you can find some comfort in a home cooked bowl of food. And one thing I would ask a, a woman, so I'll ask you, is how do you balance your family life and your work? <laughs> sure. Because being a dad is a lot, you know. Yeah. I, I'm sure I don't know how old your daughter is now, but I have a nine-year-old and a ten-year-old. I told you, and it's like all day, every day, you know. I mean, how do you do that? And run I, a restaurant. <laughs> right, 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 right. Um, I kind of, for me personally, it's akin to when you're gardening. I mean, you're kind of working and you're kind of not, right? I mean, it's it's hard work. Um, or when you're building something or when you're completely engrossed and engaged with something, you don't think of it as work. And that's how the business feels for me. I don't feel like I have to balance a separate part of me that I call life away from this other part of me that I call work. I feel like it is me, it is who I am, and it's what I do. So the trick then, the trick is how do you be present for the moments when you're engaged with your wife, your kid, and work, even if you're going from moment to moment. And I just found like it was easier for me instead of trying to carve out blocks of time and say, this is my family time, this is my home time, this is my time with my daughter, was whoever needed me, whether it's somebody at work or it's Molly or it's my daughter, be completely present in the moment for them. It's not easy. I mean, no, it's, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm certainly not a saint and, and I'm sure that my wife and daughter would have plenty to say about my attempt. <laughs> but but it's, it's, it's what I uh, try my best to do is to be present in the moment. 
even, you know, when I go on a vacation, you know, like when I do take a vacation, it's to be present at the moment. I mean, and Molly's part of the business. I mean, she's, you know, she's a um, director of hospitality and the co-founder of the business. Um, so her day is also, you know, taken up by thinking about business. And so it's a family um, business, really. It's a family business. And Aria kind of grew up with that. I mean, she was six years old when we opened Shaipani. Um, so uh, seven. And, you know, her early, she'd get picked up from school and be about straight there. I mean, classic immigrant story, right? doing homework in the corner. But we all, it's not just our family, like our family became everybody that worked with us. So we became each other's brothers and sisters and, and maids of honors and grooms of honors and best friends. And, and that relationship um, has made it feel like the buck doesn't always necessarily stop with me. Like just because Molly and I own the business, we're not the ones that have to be up at two in the morning worrying about you know, something going on. I know I, that I've got, I've got some uh, people that care about it as much as I do a team. And for many of those early team members, you know, we also put our money where our mouth is. We kind of made them all shareholders in the business too. So that way, as the business grows and, you know, the equity in the business grows, they're all also, that's a benefit to them too. So, I mean, have you rediscovered your love of cooking? Like, is that back? Yeah. It yeah. is? It's 100% back. I mean, and um, even though now we're in a stressful time again, and there's just so much going on with, you know, we thought we were open and COVID was happening again, and we can't find labor in this, that, the other, I'm still trying to find time to cook um, as much as I can every week. Um, and volunteering a lot more to cook than I ever used to. <laughs> what do you like to cook the most? What gives you the most pleasure to cook? Um, working with meat gives me the most pleasure. I mean, any kind of fish, um, meat, chicken. I, I love working with um, meat, and that gives me the most pleasure. I mean, even as simple as grilling, um, you know, something it just gives me a lot of pleasure because I'm always um, trying to find that perfection and that perfect sear and that perfect marinade and that perfect uh, whatever. Um, but I also love um, making something for Aria, who's more of a pasta, and you know, you know, making something for her that is teeters the line between different enough to where it's uh, it's cool, but not so different to where she goes like, "What the hell is that?" I'm not <laughs> <laughs> I know the struggle well. And if you had to choose like one dish, and like you're in a purgatory, and you have to eat the same dish over and over and over again, what would it be? Oh my god, it would probably. <laughs> Over and over again in purgatory. You're like you're never oh, going to get sick of it. Probably my my Kashmiri chili marinated lamb chops. I'll probably I can eat that with onions and and uh, you know some sort of flatbread like that. Yeah, I could find different ways to mix it up with the same thing over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> I can make a roll out of it. I can make a kebab out of it. I can pound it and make a burger out of it. I can eat it on the bone. I can, I'll, I'll find. I can put it in a gravy. Um, I, I won't get tired of it. <laughs> good answer. Good answer. Well, I appreciate your time. Appreciate learning about you more. And it's always a joy to speak with you. Oh, thank you so much. I, I, I love I love a good conversation. I feel this was a wonderful conversation. It You're was. Great host. Thank and thanks, you. Thanks for, thanks for the trips down memory lane. I appreciate it. Do you have anything you'd like to plug? Or is there anything coming from your restaurant group that diners should look for? Uh, thanks for asking. Um, well, I definitely want to plug the new menu at Chaipani Decatur. Uh, I just was come back from Gujarat, uh, the, one of the northwestern states of India, um, before the pandemic, and never had a chance to put these ideas down on the menu. So we've done that, and it's some of the most unusual and incredible food, Indian food in America right now, I believe. Go try it. And then, um, let's see, Nani's Rotisserie Chicken. 
my favorite rotisserie chicken in all the country. I got sick and tired of um, going to the grocery store and buying a half dried out chicken that's been sitting in the heat lamp for God knows how many hours, and it's a crapshoot. Is this one going to be dry? Is it going to be juicy? And uh, I, I opened this place, and we're probably going to end up opening a whole bunch of them uh, throughout the southeast. And uh, we are right now. It's in Asheville, just in Asheville. Right now, it's in Asheville, and it's about to open in Pond City Market in a matter of a couple of months. So do come try that out in Atlanta. And then we just have a, our latest and newest enterprise is Buxton Chicken Palace, which is our the legendary fried chicken sandwich at Buxton Hall has now has its own platform. Buxton oh, Chicken spin-off. Palace. Spinoff. Yes, and it's in the S and W Food Hall, which I'm a part of and help curate. And we're hoping to bring that also to a city near you. Um, and then, of course, as always, SpiceWallow.com for some of the best spices that I think that our team can put together. And uh, the last thing I'll say about spices is most people have a funny relationship with blends. They find one they like, like Old Bay or Montreal Steak Seasoning. But blends and blending of spices have been around for as long as spices have been around. They're blends that go back a thousand plus years. And uh, we uh, carry an incredible array of blends from around the world. Um, that I feel speak not just to how good something is by just dusting it over over food, but also to the culture and heritage of that particular part of the world. So there you have it. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for asking the question. Well, that's this week's episode. Thank you for listening. And thank you to Marwan for joining me. If you want to follow him, you can find him on Instagram at Marwan Irani. If you want to follow me on social, you can find me as Jennifer Zeman or The Food That Binds on Instagram and Twitter. And please don't forget to give me some star love in whatever app you use to listen to the podcast because it helps people find me and it helps me grow my audience. Next week, I'm joined by chefs Jian Lee and Koi Taylor, the owners of Heirloom Market Barbecue in Smyrna. We talked about so much, including their own personal culinary origin stories how they met, and where they are today. Again, we're going to be back on Wednesday. And this is Jennifer Zeman, your host of The Food That Binds on the Eat, Drink, Dine podcast network.